Well, hello again. Uh, I want to welcome, I didn't last time, all the folks online. We have a growing community of people online right now that are, that are joining and watching. As a matter of fact, just in the last month, I've met, uh, I think, three or four different families that said they had been attending Kesed for over a year, but had never actually been to a service. And so there is just sort of a culture that's being made right now uh, outside these walls, and I just want to acknowledge that and recognize that. So if you consider yourself part of the Kesset family, but you haven't yet been, uh, we just want you to know that, that uh, we appreciate you and the way you help and the way that you're a part. Uh, for those of us who are here present, thank you so much for being here. If you're brand new, uh, my name is Danny, as I just shared with you, and uh, I'm so excited you're here. Kesset is a really interesting space. It's a, it's a space for people who are spiritually curious. It's a space for people who want to ask questions and who uh, are, are comfortable living in somewhat of the gray. It's a space for people to challenge, to disagree. And uh, anything that's said on this stage, I just want you to know that, that, that you have direct access to the Holy Spirit as well. And that uh, you are able to filter, you are able to wrestle, and you are able to also um, hear from God around the text and the things that we're studying uh, now, I'm going to do my best to bring truth and to bring what he lays upon my heart. But sometimes, like in today's message, uh, I'm going to bring some sort of personal stuff that, that, that sits within my prayer life that I think the Bible supports, but that, that I'm willing to, uh, to be challenged on. I'm willing to have you go, hmm, I never really thought of it that way. Because at least you'll be engaging in prayer and how you believe it works. This series right now is called Homeward, and it's a series about learning to orient our lives. There's a lot of things right now competing for the orientation of your life. For a lot of people, I think their, their biggest goal is to orient their life probably around family, and then they get distracted with work, or they get distracted with politics, or they get distracted with something else, and they're like, no, i got to remember family. There's actually a, an orientation even above family, the Bible says, which is God, who is the creator of life, and obviously the designer of family, and when we as Christians all orient our lives on God, everybody slowly moves closer together in intimacy and relationship, not just with him, but with each other. And so our families are stronger. You cannot build a stronger family uh, than focusing on God and how he wants you to be as a mom or a dad or a son or a single person. You cannot build a stronger family. Even focusing on the family will build a weaker family than focusing on God because of his principles and the way that he wants to design us and how we operate. Now, we, in the intro week, we talked about how prayer is effective in every circumstance and situation. And we're gonna maintain that, that, that everybody is in a different process and everybody experiences prayer from a different spectrum. Then last week, we talked about how we pray. Lindsay taught on the Lord's Prayer and sort of that structure, that template of how we walk through these different things around prayer from us to God. This week is a little bit different, and this week, as I said, is a little bit of you sort of uh, surmising from what I'm saying and seeing how it fits inside your prayer life. I believe it's universal, but again, I'm open to, uh, to questions about it. This week, we're going to talk about the posture of prayer that God is in while he's receiving our prayer. That's why I said it's a little unique for me to just say, this is how God works, and this is what he does, and this is his posture. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of how I believe God is receiving prayer from us and how I believe there is almost a, almost a frequency that you can sit within that is the receiving of prayer that God is, uh, is, is, is gathering from us. But I also want to recognize that, that uh, this is my interpretation and that this is an interesting way to look at prayer. But I think it's very important that we talk about that. 
Because if God is up in heaven and your orientation is that you're going to be praying to him and he's away from you, for instance, he's not close, he's not intimate. And if he's up there like receiving our prayers in order to grow in, let's say, strength, like God absorbs prayer and gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Like that's, that's like, I think that's a comic book hero, isn't it, of some kind? But that, like that's maybe how you receive prayer. Or maybe it's he's up there as a judge and he's only receiving prayer from people who are dancing to the right tune the very best. Or maybe he's up there sort of just, just not really even aware. He's distracted. And so you've got to make big noise or you've got to be like hours and hours and hours for him to notice you. How you perceive God's posture when receiving your prayers is important to how you understand and how you live out this prayer life. Because you can have the prayer template, the way in which you're supposed to pray that Jesus gave us. And you can even understand that prayer sits within a spectrum. So all of us are on different journeys. But if we don't understand together how God is receiving those prayers, then we could end up praying with the wrong tone in our own lives, dancing loudly, uh, trying to perform, uh, trying to prove, whatever it might be. And that's often why I think many of us don't have prayer lives that are very successful, because we misunderstand the posture of God and how he's receiving them in the first place. So this is pretty personal for me. But it's also, I think, something that, um, that I'm willing to put out there so that you can have it and that you can evaluate for yourself. Here's what I believe. I believe that the Lord, in and of himself, is constantly sitting within this posture of grace and mercy. That that is how he is receiving our prayer. That that is sort of the space that he's in while he is moving and working within his kingdom. And these words, uh, a lot of people think are like interchangeable. They're basically the same thing. They're actually not. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Grace and mercy. Here's what it says about God and this posture. Psalm 145, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is how he is, the Bible says. He is gracious and merciful. This is how he operates. James 5.11 says, the Lord is full of compassion. Kind of the same idea around grace and mercy. That he is full of it. That he, is, that he abounds in it. And there's verse after verse after verse that kind of help us illustrate this idea that God operates within this realm of grace and mercy when it comes to his children and it comes to how he runs his kingdom. So since mercy and grace are a foundational part of who God is and a huge concept for both the Christians every day and, and corporate prayer life, we're going to look at each one individually and we're going to start with grace. Here's how I want you to think about grace, how I understand grace as a definition and how I think the Bible teaches it. I want you to think of grace as being rewarded when we don't deserve it. Just at its base level. Grace is being rewarded when we don't deserve it, or God blessing the unworthy, God gifting the unworthy. I've had many seasons in my life where uh, I was blessed and I didn't deserve it, and I didn't realize then that I was experiencing grace, but I, I do know now. So this, that's a gift for you, for those of you who uh, are, are experiencing blessing in your life right now and you just know you don't deserve it, that's grace. Or for those of you who have people in your life that you're helping and you know they don't deserve it, People in your life you're loving in a way that, that they're kind of taking advantage of, that's grace. That's you operating also in grace. I want to give you a story of how I think uh, God works out our prayers when we are living 
inside this concept of grace. The story is from 2 Kings. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be in chapter 4. 2 Kings tells us of the plight of a woman who has lost her husband and is now faced with debts she cannot pay. So she has stepped outside of the cultural norm. She has obviously taken on loans. She has obviously tried to maneuver through life in a way that that didn't work. Her husband is no longer with her. And she has come to the point now that she is so in debt that the debt collectors of the time are now able and willing to come and take her sons, the only things she had left, and put them in slavery. So she goes to the prophet Elisha. Elisha is kind of this, this person on earth that, that sort of represents the movements of God and how God does what he does. So you can think of him sort of that way. He is, he is the voice and hands and feet and miracle worker, all representing God and who God is. Second Kings 4.1 starts off with her plea to him. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. So the very first thing we notice about this woman is that she goes to the closest thing she can during this time to God and she cries out and says, do you see my circumstances? Do you see my situation? Do you see where I am? She cries out to God, through Elisha, if you will, and says, this is my world and this is what's happening. And in our stories right now, when it comes to our prayer lives, sometimes the problems around us cannot be fixed and all you can do is cry out. Just cry out. Just be honest. Just be authentic. Do you see what's happening? Do you see how I'm hurting? Do you see the bondage in my life and the things that I'm wrestling with? This man of God has an interesting response. It's not super, uh, uh, I don't know, compassionate. It doesn't feel super compassionate. He simply says to her, verse two, and Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? Now this interesting verse, so when I read verses like this, uh, sometimes I, I, I don't know how the authors should have inserted the, the, the feeling of space, but I feel like there should have been space in this where he listened to her. She was obviously crying. And then finally he realizes she's asking him to do something about it, but she hasn't actually asked anything specific. And so he says to her, what shall I do for you? And then I think she waits him out. I think she's just such a mess and she's already racked her brain for all the different options that she can do. Because this is what we do, honestly, before we go to God in prayer. We usually have exhausted every other circumstance. Let's just be honest. Hardly anybody goes to God in prayer about knowing what to do. Like, oh, cool, I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna do that and then I'm gonna do this. No one's like praying to God about the things they're doing. They're always praying to God about when the things they're doing are no longer working. Honestly, right? Like you're like, okay, the market's up. I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to take the equity. I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy this home. I'm going to, no one's like, God, should I sell my house and take the equity and buy that vacation home and then upgrade my wife's ring? And then should I go out and get a new car? No one's praying about that. People are praying about when they sold their house and then the market crashed and then they lost the vacation home. Then the wife had the hawker ring and all of a sudden it's like, hey God, um, like what should I do? It's always how it works. And that's exactly what's happening here. This woman is sitting before Elisha. She asked, what shall I do? And then finally, after the proper amount of space, he finally is like, oh, she's interested in me doing something. And so he just says, what do you have in the house? It's a really interesting question because she already knows all the things she has in the house. It's a really weird question to ask. Like, why not provide a miracle? Why not just hand me a bag of magic gold? But instead he's like, what do you have in the house? I like this verse very much. Because I like that after she cries out, she waits 
And suddenly this man of God, let's just say this representative of the Holy Spirit, asks her, what does she have in the house? She waits and suddenly her attention is drawn to what has already been provided. Elisha, in essence, has asked, what has God already given? So she answers, verse three. And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a little jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door and behind yourself, go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. I love that when he asks her what she has in the house, she's honest. She's just honest about what she has. This is all I have left. This is the only thing that exists. She doesn't try to pretend she has things she doesn't have. I think we do this a lot in our prayer lives. We pray to God acting like we have faith we don't have. I believe in you, Lord. I know you can do it. I trust you. And inside you're like, I don't know if he can do it. I don't even know if he cares or listens. Frankly, that would be a more honest prayer. That would be closer to sitting inside this grace frequency that I think sometimes the Lord would rather us operate in. And this woman does it. She's honest. And so then Elisha, Elisha gives her a plan. He says, go out and get jars, as many as you can, as many as you believe will be filled, and then shut the door behind you. Notice it doesn't say go out and get jars, pour oil in them. And as you see the oil starting to fill up, as you see the jars, go out and get more jars and more jars and more jars. Nope, this woman has to go out and get jars from people and trust that somehow this little tiny jar of oil is going to fill all these jars. It's an actual living representation of her faith and how she thinks God's going to work. And then the doors are shut. By the way, it would be really embarrassing if, um, if you, people knew that you were in huge debt and that they, you were in such huge debt that they were going to come and take all your stuff, including your children. And then you started sending those children to neighbors and asking, do you have any empty jars? Like she would be the crazy jar lady for at least a week. Like did so-and-so, did the widow come and get your jars? Yeah, she got all my jars. She took my flower pot. She took my water basin. Like she took everything. Aren't her sons going into slavery soon? Shouldn't she be doing something about that? I don't know. She just wanted my jars. (laughs) This is often how our prayer lives take us. They take us to places where the things God wants us to do are like between us and him and the rest of the world is like, what are you doing? Some of you in this room right now, going to church is just that by itself. Because you're not from a church culture or a church family, and you're looking for something more. You're curious for something more. So you keep showing up or you keep tuning in, and you know that your family's like, have you heard so-and-so's like watching like church services? Like she, she actually went to a church service. I don't know. She's crazy church lady now. <laughs> Some of you in here are like, this is for me. This message is for me. What happens next? I'm going to get there. Just relax. (laughs) This lady is honest and she decides to go out and get the jars. And it says she immediately, 2 Kings 4, 5, and 6. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her son. So it doesn't say how many jars she got. It just says she went from him. Clearly she went and got jars and she shut the door behind herself. And then it began. And as she poured from her little jar, they brought the vessels to her. There's still more, mom. There is another jar. There's still more, mom. There is another jar. Think about the energy in the house as she's filling jar after jar after jar of oil that she can sell to pay off the debts. 
Think of the excitement. Think of the joy. Think of the praise. Think of that space. We always just avoid these, these pauses in scripture when this old woman is feeling, I, I'd like, I, my heart wants it to be like the tiniest of jars, just the tiniest of silly jars, like, like almost a joke jar. Right? It just like, like a little, like, like a essential oils jar, just a tiny little essential oils jar. It's like so much cinnamon. Look at all this cinnamon. Like it just comes forever, right? That's what I want to imagine. But as they poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her, son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil immediately stopped flowing. This is what I call like when one of those verses, one of those passages where you realize you barely survived it. Because what would have happened if she just would have had a little faith and only asked like her two closest friends that wouldn't have thought she was crazy for like seven jars? Like, well, I mean, what, what is God really going to do with this little tiny jar? What if she would have only had seven jars and then halfway through she would have realized, I don't have any more jars, but the doors are already closed. And the man of God said to keep the doors closed. I only have seven jars. What would have happened if her faith was that small? This woman believed and had enough jars. But I believe sometimes in our prayer lives, because we don't understand the posture of grace that God is receiving our prayers in, that he is outworking within us. We're pretty good at crying out when we have a problem. We're okay at waiting. Not so good, but we'll do it. We're honest with what we have or don't have. But then when it comes to this point, instead of believing, we doubt. And so we have lives that are limited by not enough jars. Many times I think the Lord brings us into these houses of grace to give us these opportunities to show us who he is, to bless us when we don't deserve it, to pour graciously into our lives. But we only have three jars and so we miss the miracle altogether. We're like, God's not very gracious to me. Well, how many jars did you gather? Where did you show up? How much time did you invest in your marriage or your story or your spirituality or your person or your children? How much did you give up? How much did you hold? How much did you claim responsibility for? How much did you avoid? All these different things. And when you're like, nope, this is how I live. This is what I do. That's your jar. Nope. And God's like, okay, I'll fill it. And you're like, all right. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'm still feeling in bondage. This isn't really enough to do a bunch. God's like, then go get more jars. Set down what you see is this great perception of how your life's supposed to be and exchange it for the one that God has and go become the person in town that knocks on neighbor's doors to borrow jars, to share stories, to be where and how you're supposed to be. I wonder if a lot of prayer lives are limited because we just don't have enough jars to even show the miracles of God's grace in our lives. The last verse in this story, verse seven, says she came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. I really like that she went after already having all of the resources she needed back to the man of God to ask the man of God how the resources should be spent. I love that she just didn't go, oh, God provided. And guess what? Boom, I know exactly what to do. Right back in that other thing that we never pray about. Right back in that other way of, okay, now I finally survived the market and I, or I survived COVID or I survived politics. And now you're right back in the habit of just doing the things you wanna do and then not really going before God because nobody goes before God, as I said, when they already know what to do. She knew to sell the oil. It's obvious that God blessed her in that way, but she is in such a posture of grace. She knew the blessings of the oil wasn't even hers. She didn't deserve it. So she goes back to the source and says, tell me what I should do. And then he says, go sell the oil, pay off all your debts, live on the rest. 
And so she does. How often in our lives are you gathering enough jars? Maybe you're listening to the message so far and you're like, not for me. I go before God, I pray, I get all the jars, I have all the faith. But then when God actually fills the jars, then you're like, now I'm gonna manage his blessing. I'm gonna manage his resource. I'm gonna manage what it is he's given me. That's why Pastor Tom and the culture that we're trying to create here at Kesed is not one that suddenly when we have two campuses and we have some savings and we have some of this, that we're like, okay, clearly God blessed us because we know what to do. Instead, we should all be going back to God and saying, okay, God, this is yours. What do you want us to do with it? I don't know what you have that God wants to use. I don't know where it sits inside your life. I have no idea. But I know that if you have enough jars and you're the only one managing them, then I think once again, you're missing the point of his blessing. I'm trying really hard at Kesed to maintain that kind of focus. Really hard right now in this position of blessing that we have, I'm trying really hard not to go, well, clearly God must think that I or the leadership or the elders all know how to, how to manage this culture we're in because God just keeps blessing. And I don't think it works that way. I think God blesses people who are willing to go back to the source and say, now what do you want to do with it? Just a thought. This woman seeks more grace. And I think a lot of it comes from Elisha. Again, he represents sort of this, this spirit of God on earth. And here's what I think. I think Elisha knew there would be days we would think that we have nothing and that we must look to God to, for provision. And I believe if Elisha had invited himself into the widow's small house and worked the miracle for her, then no one would have been surprised. After all, this was a man of God. That's what he's supposed to do. But this time, wisely, Elisha insisted the miracle be between the widow and God so that she could see how sufficient and grace-filled the Lord really was for her. Even Elisha gets out of the way because that's how powerful the impact of grace is. And so God in his grace supplies all and more that she needs. I think this is what praying with a posture of grace looks like. It looks like lining up with God. We start by crying out. We wait for God to respond. We're honest with what we have, which is usually not enough. We believe God can, and then we seek him for more direction when he does. That's how grace works. And that's for some of you more than others right now. Not, not that grace is, grace is for everyone, but that posture, that sermon, that breaking of how you've been living in your orientation, that's for some of you and it should change everything. May you have a prayer life filled with grace beyond measure. Now there's a second part to this that I think is just as important and it's mercy. So if we're thinking of grace as being rewarded when we don't deserve it, Let's think of mercy as not being punished when we do deserve it. I relate a lot more, if I'm being authentic, with mercy than, uh, than with grace. Uh, I had a small problem as a, as a teenage young man with uh, driving too fast here in town, <laughs> everywhere. Uh, and I got pulled over so consistently one summer that policemen would just point at my car as I drove by, even if I wasn't speeding, and tell me to pull over just to check in and make sure that I knew that they knew where I was and they were watching. I got pulled over one time by a speakerphone. He didn't even turn on the light. He just said, Danny, pull over. <laughs> True story. From the back of his car, this is super embarrassing too. He's like, how many times do I have to tell you to slow down? And I just put my hands out the window like, and he was like, I'm going to arrest you the next time. 
And so I just started driving faster in Oregon after that. That's what I, <laughs> that's what I ended up doing. True story. Another time I was driving one way and a, a motorcycle policeman was driving the other way and I was going quite fast. Uh, and I had a really terrible habit of when I would see, uh, I, I have a, there's like police that go to our church and, and I'm so gracious for what, or grateful for what they have done in my life. But I've had some really uh, merciful cops, really merciful policemen. And I remember one time I passed this motorcycle cop and instead of just knowing he was gonna pull me over, I, I took off. And I don't know if you've ever tried to outrun a police motorcycle, but it is not a good idea because they are much, much faster than the cars. And this man caught me in like two miles. So, and he was going so fast when I pulled over. I was like, that was amazing. <laughs> and he actually stopped and he goes, they're really fast, right? This was the new model. And we had a whole talk, a whole talk. And then he wrote me a giant ticket. And he was like, so remember, we know you're here. And so I, I eventually, because my insurance at one point was more than my rent, and my wife was mad at it because I got married during that season. Uh, I, I curbed that habit. But I relate a lot to this mercy. Mercy is thinking, uh, think of mercy as not being punished when we do deserve it. It's God delivering us from judgment, recognizing what we've done, and then not arresting us. Okay, this is what it kind of means. Now, Psalm 4.1 talks about this posture of God. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Here's the biggest thing I want you to know about mercy. God is very good at it. He is superb at it. There's no one more merciful anywhere that has ever existed than God. Deuteronomy 4, 31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Micah 7, 18, you delight to show mercy. 2 Samuel 24, 14, I love this verse. If we're gonna fall, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. The mercy of God is something churches do not preach very much because it doesn't fit well with our signs that say, if you don't believe like us, you're gonna burn in hell. Like nobody's out like protesting the mercy of God. Like nobody ever. It's like the other prayer version. Nobody's ever protesting the mercy of God. Nobody's ever like, don't you know God's merciful and loves you in spite of all this? Don't you know that? No one does that. And so the reason no one does that is because no one does it for themselves. No one sits and thinks in prayer, in the posture of prayer, that here's what I know. God is receiving my prayer in a merciful way. He's receiving it like grace, but he is also receiving it like mercy. He is receiving it in this space of being rewarded when we don't deserve it like grace, but he is also not punishing us when we do deserve it over and over and over again. One of the best examples of how merciful God is lies alongside a text describing one of the worst people in all of scripture. This man that I wanna read you about, he's a king of Judah and his name is Manasseh. And Manasseh's introduction is some of the worst descriptions of a human being that I've ever read in scripture. And inside it, you're gonna see just how God's mercy works and unfolds. It starts in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. We'll read through verse six and then verse nine. This is what it said. This is the description of this man who was to lead God's people, this king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. 
For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinman. What? So he went to all the church places and built altars to other gods and then sacrificed his own babies on those altars. And then he used fortune telling and omens, and sorcery, and dealt with mediums, and with necromancers. This dude's like a bad character in the Lord of the Rings. This is not good. This is not good. He's got a long white beard and a big staff and a ball with fire somewhere. This is bad. This is, and he's king of God's people. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to anger. And then it says, verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do, listen to this description, more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. He was more evil than the people that God destroyed the generations before. He ushered it all back in over his lifespan, over his leadership. So it says the Lord confronts him. And it doesn't tell us how, but I feel like feel like we're missing something right here. Like there must've been these epic miracles or these epic experiences because he has all these things that he's involved in, the necromancers and the sorcerers and all these different things. So there must've been different ways that says the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. We don't know how, we just know it would have been clear as day, but he decided to avoid it. And so after the Lord confronted, Manasseh began to experience problems and pain unlike many have ever experienced. It's a very simple description, but this is what it says. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, listen to this, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Captured with hooks. This does not sound like a fun way to travel. And he's a king now bound in chains being brought before a neighboring kingdom. But Manasseh, over however many years he was captured, begins to recognize these spaces in his life that he has messed up, even this evil man. And so this is what it says, that he prayed for mercy. 33 verse 12, and when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. I just want to say real quick, I don't care how distant you've lived your life. I don't care how messed up you've lived, you've lived your life. I don't care if some of the things that Manasseh did, you're actually doing now. If you will recognize that some of the pain, some of the restrictions, some of the heartache in your life might be God trying to remove you from this destructive behavior. And if you're willing to sit in a space to humble yourself, just like this verse, entreat favor of the Lord and humble himself greatly before the God of his fathers, God will move every time. It's what he does because he's full of mercy. It says that he prayed to him, verse 13, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Again, where is the rest of the story? 
Like all we have is like, did terrible things, hooked, put in jail. We don't know how long. Then suddenly he breaks down, goes before God, and then God somehow unwinds his capturing and somehow puts him back in a place of power and influence. It's, it's like one and a half verses. It's the, it's the, I don't understand whoever wrote this, why they didn't include the whole thing. But you know there's something beautiful and epic happening here because God is moving. And the point is, it's not really about Manasseh. This is why I think it's written this way. It's all about God. It's not really about the details. It's all about the way Manasseh moves and the way that God counters those moves. Manasseh prays for mercy and God does it. And then it shows that God, uh, because of the mercy, transformed Manasseh's heart. This is how the story ends. And he took away the foreign gods, Manasseh did, and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. It seems to me that praying within a posture of mercy almost always has this heart transforming effect upon the prayer's heart. When you pray in that posture, when you're in that frequency with God, something breaks, something falls apart in your heart that allows you to be restored, maybe not to the kingdom that you lost, but to the person you were intended to be. Because God is moved by prayers of mercy because he is a merciful God. Perhaps this is why the Lord is constantly calling us back to this posture, not just before him, but before each other. Zechariah 7, 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness, grace, and mercy to one another. Live this way with each other and live this way with me. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the posture that we are to be in when we pray before God. This is and always has been the message of Jesus Christ. This is the story that he came to bring, grace and mercy to this world. Ephesians 2 describes kind of that space that Christ gets to sit in. I'm gonna read it over you. It says, but God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is the posture I think the Lord receives our prayers. And I think that's why it's the posture for me that I want to be in most of the time. I want to experience homeward orienting prayers of grace and mercy. I want to ask God to bless me when I don't deserve it. And I want to ask God not to punish me when I do. Because between those things, I know without his presence in my life, I would end up just making myself into my own little king. And I would erect all sorts of statues and all the high places of my culture and my time, whether it's my, my Instagram page or my bank account or my building or my home or my perfect family. And I would sacrifice everything I had on those altars. And I would become somebody I never wanted to be, but for God's grace and mercy, 
Instead, I can sit here before you today and tell you that God is a restoring, moving, living, effective, efficient lover of my soul. And that through Jesus, the ultimate example of grace and mercy, my life has been changed forever. And that is why when we pray, it is through Jesus' name that we pray. Because he is the one that takes that posture and makes it so, even when we pray our prayers in ignorance or arrogance. So my hope is that you have a prayer life like that. That you get to experience that. Because it is, it is so very important for you and the generations you are leading and affecting. When you came in, you were given a, a little communion cup. What I want you to do is just keep it closed for a minute. I know some of you, because it takes minutes and minutes to open, for some of you like to get a running start, but let's take a breath. Here's what I want to do. I think we recognize, and if you're brand new and not a Christian, just this is something for you to learn. You don't have to participate. But if you're a Christ follower, you know that this bread represents the body of Christ and the juice represents his blood. We recognize that it is, that is something we are partaking in in order to identify with the relationship with Jesus. So what I want to do is I'm going to have the worship team come out and they're going to play a song over you. And during the song, when you're ready, when you're ready, you can take the bread and you can take the juice and you can recognize that the relationship that God is offering to you is critical to your story and to your person and you can engage in that moment of grace and mercy yourself. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, I recognize that in a space like this, there's lots of people coming from many different directions. I ask that there would be a moment where we could pause and reflect upon the grace and mercy that you are offering to us. I ask that during this song that there would be a moment we felt led to, to offer up who we are with a posture of grace and mercy to who you are, a God of grace and mercy. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you for the offering of relationship that is being extended to all of us here today. And so we take a moment to reflect upon you and the way you want to move. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm living proof of what the mercy of God can do. If you knew me then, you believe me now. You turned my whole life upside down. Took the old and he made it new. That's just what the mercy of God can do. Now I'm alive to tell the story how I've overcome. It's His goodness and mercy and the power of His blood. I'm so glad that my freedom wasn't based what I've done but the goodness and mercy and the power of the blood 
Have a great week. See you next Sunday.